0: Hey, it's Andrew, the Director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today, literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor. Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature Viet Thanh Nguyen in conversation with Tommy Orange from the 2023 Portland Book Festival. Viet Thanh Nguyen won the Pulitzer Prize in 2016 for his debut novel, The Sympathizer, which sold more than 1 million copies worldwide catapulted him to national fame, and is now also being made into an HBO miniseries. Since 2016, he has gone on to publish two more books of fiction and a work of nonfiction called Nothing Ever Dies. He joined us for the festival on the occasion of the publication of A Man of Two Faces, a memoir, a history, a memorial. He was joined on stage by novelist Tommy Orange, who wrote the celebrated novel There, There, the two dive into a discussion about Nguyen's new book, which is formally inventive and unusual in the sense it's a mix of history, personal memoir, and a biography of his parents, telling an intergenerational story of his family's forced migration from Vietnam to the United States and the deeply personal impact this journey has. With a wry and ironic sense of humor, Nguyen offers us a tender view of his family's history, the truth ironies and lies behind the so-called American dream, and how he has come to understand his role as a writer at this specific moment in American life. Here's Viet to Nguyen in conversation with Tommy Orange at the Portland Book Festival in 2023. Yeah.
1: Portland, Portland Book Festival. So great to be here with Tommy. Thanks, Andrew, for that introduction. Thanks to everybody for coming out on uh, such a rainy day. I guess it's normal weather for you guys, but... Uh but I'm t- I'm so thrilled to be here with uh, with Tommy. Uh, we've we've spoken a few times, and uh, we made our first acquaintance. I'd like to say in Paris <laughs> over a bottle of champagne. <laughs> right, that was that was great to see you there uh, in Paris with your family.
2: I was pretty starstruck then, and am even now. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think. I- I think I'd like to start just by saying uh, congratulations on writing another beautiful book. I have been in it, you know, these past couple weeks and uh, it's, it's a feat and um, it's very inventive and, and I loved being in it. You, as in your novels, um, you strike this balance of humor and uh, utter seriousness. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of having a sense of humor when approaching uh, what can be very, uh, a very dismal subject?
1: Absolutely. You know, Anybody who's known me for the past, well, for most of my life, would have said Viet does not have a sense of humor. Um, <laughs> And I think that what happened to me was that I, I survived my childhood and my Catholic upbringing and, and my uh, refugee experiences by s- sort of shutting down emotionally, just being a very serious, very controlled person. And having a sense of humor does not get you very far in the Catholic Church, for example. Um, <laughs> and it doesn't get you very far in academia either, which is my day job. Uh, but then when I became a writer with The Sympathizer, I really sort of started to dig into myself, scrape away some of the, the repression and that had accumulated over the decades and discovered I actually do have a sense of humor. Um, and that a sense of humor can actually be really, really useful for a writer in at least a couple of ways. One is that it, it, it eases the burden of a serious story. Um, And I'll give you one example of that, which is Anthony Vyasna So wrote the book After Parties uh, about Cambodian refugees. Yeah, it's a great book. Um, So there's one moment in in After Parties where the narrator narrator talks about the sob stories that you're expected to tell if you happen to come from some kind of minority background that people associate with, with some kind of trauma or tragedy, and then he tells a joke. And the joke is that the narrator's father was a survivor of the Cambodian genocide and they're watching uh, TV together, they're watching Survivor, the reality show. <laughs> and the father says, uh, I survived the Cambodian genocide and this make, means I will win Survivor if I'm ever cast on it, it's a perfect training. And so that's, that's, an, that's an awful joke, but it's really funny at the same time. And I feel that you know, for those of us who've lived through horrifying Historical uh, experiences or our parents did that being able to laugh about those things is a survival tactic um, and then finally it's you know the laughter in the form of satire is really important for me so there 's a lot of satire in this book and in my novels because that's how well that 's one way we can make fun of power and show how show the hypocrisy and the absurdity of so many abuses of power in our society so you talk a lot about um Thank you very much. I thought I was very eloquent, yes.
2: <laughs> different faces, um, different aspects of your life. Can you j- talk a little bit about um, Karl Marxism versus Groucho Marxism?
1: I am a Marxist, um, and as I like to say, I'm a dialectical Marxist. Woo! Yes! Uh, I, I think you in Colorado, I was in... I was in um, uh, uh, was it Boulder, Boulder, Colorado, for the Jaipur uh, Literary Festival. They also applauded when I said I was a Marxist. It was only, two, only two times this ever happened. Um, but you know, I mean, if you, if it, I, mean I, 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 I grew up uh, as being raised in a very anti-communist household and an anti-communist community because I grew up among Vietnamese refugees and they, for obvious reasons, did not like communism, still don't like communism. And in fact, uh, many of them think I'm a communist. I know, because my students tell me, who are Vietnamese, like my, you know, these, these Vietnamese students who take my classes, yeah, my parents think you're a commie. And um, another young Vietnamese-American woman said to me recently at an event, you're the second most hated person in my parents' household. <laughs> most hated person? Joe Biden. Uh, yeah, so, and I'm okay with that, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, and but uh, but you know if but yeah I've read a lot of Marxist theory and I've certainly thought about what happens with Marxism in actually you know situations, and uh, Marxism is great in in a lot of ways, but when you put it into implementation, some terrible things can happen. So the dialectical part of Marxism is really important for me because you know Karl Marx not the funniest guy around, um, so Groucho Marx became a real inspiration for me. Um, it reminded me of certain things. For example, after, after the success of, of my book, and maybe you've seen this with the success of your book as well, I started to get invited to all kinds of clubs that I was never invited to before. Very elite clubs. Um, and so in this book, there's a reference to how I got invited to you know, um, a, a very elite club in Los Angeles uh, to, to give a talk in the Ronald Reagan Room and the the room was decorated with portraits of great white men like Clint Eastwood. Um, And I I thought about that Groucho Marx line, wouldn't want to be invited to any club that would have me. And I thought that's absolutely true uh, as a satire and as a class critique. So Karl Marx and Groucho Marx, that is my dialectic, you know, because I think Karl Marxism would benefit from the humor of Groucho Marxism, and Groucho Marxism, as funny as it is, would benefit from the class critique of Karl Marx. thank you
2: as in the the novel or the short story collection uh you referenced after parties I loved um reading about Stockton which is not often represented um you know there's a a fair amount of California novels out there but nothing compared to New York novels um and you know San Jose is another one of the forgotten cities and I I loved reading the way you describe San Jose, it's sort of a love-hate relationship, mostly love in the end. But there's a part that I, that I really loved, which is uh, your history with um, Great America. If you could just tell everybody, Great America's, a, um, for those of you that don't know, it's an amusement park in, uh, near San Jose. I think it's technically Santa Clara. Could you tell us the story about how you got fired from Great America?
1: Yeah, I love that story. Uh, and yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you write about Oakland, and I write about San Jose, and, and when I was growing up, I, I, I thought, uh, the only thing that anybody knows about this city is, do you know the way to San Jose? You know, the, the Dion uh, Warwick song. Uh, and even she hated that song, you know, it was like a number one hit, and she hated it. And that was the only thing people knew about San Jose. Um, and uh, I, I, when I was in high school, I was 16, I was going to an all-boys uh, Jesuit college preparatory and Great America came recruiting. Um, And I thought, wow, this would be my chance to find a girlfriend if I worked at Great America. And so I did, in fact, start working for Great America that summer of my my, uh, 16th year. And we were paid $3.35 an hour minimum wage. And our job was to run the rides. So these 16-year-old kids being paid $3.35 an hour are in charge of these rides and the ride that I was in charge of was called the tidal wave which is a roller coaster where you're you're in a row of cars and you're shot at extremely high velocity into a loop and then it goes backwards in the loop again and so our job as 16 year olds was to make sure you were strapped firmly into your seat so you wouldn't fall out and die (laughs) and of course I was looking for a girlfriend so I was not really paying that much attention and then one one day, one of my coworkers, you know, sixteen-year-old kid probably, said, "Watch this!" And he gets in. And you, first of all, you're not supposed to ride the rides when you're working. But he got into the into the car, and he didn't put the shoulder, he didn't put the lap bar on. And the, and then he, and, and then the, the, we fired off the the, the the roller coaster. He goes into the loop once, out of the loop once. He comes back. He hasn't fallen out to his death, screaming. And He gets out, and he says, "Centrifugal force," you know. <laughs> And I was like, oh, cool, Uh, and then I did it, and everybody did it on the ride, and I'm a coward, so this, I was was either really brave or really foolhardy, I think it was the latter. Um, So we were doing this repeatedly, when you're not supposed to do it for safety reasons, but also when you're in uniform, and by the way, my uniform, because we worked in Yankee Harbor, my uniform was a tricorn hat, (laughs) a a polyester shirt with a ruffle, black bell-bottom pants, and a cummerbund because we were, you know, pirates or, or Yankees or whatever. And, uh, and then there was another ride in this area called The Revolution, and The Revolution it's a boat that goes in a complete circle and it pauses at the top and you're dangling upside down for 10 or 15 seconds held in by your shoulder bar and a lap bar. Well, One night after work we decided it would be a lot of fun to get on that ride and not put the lap bar on, and so we're hanging upside down from our shoulders laughing because we thought it was so fun. Anyway, some really boring person uh, reported us to the suits, and we were all fired from that job. Uh, So so I, I think it's an ironic mark of pride to be fired from Great America.
2: I was looking for a joke about how to make Great America great again, but I couldn't find it. Um, in the audiobook, you uh, made the choice, or you and the producers made the choice to bleep out uh, Trump's name. Could you talk a little bit about that choice? And um, it's a really kind of a visceral experience as you listen, um, as you hear it as a sort of curse.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I, I started recording the audiobook uh, because I thought it was really necessary since it's such a personal work. And because it requires French and Vietnamese, and I can do those languages as well, in the book itself, when you read it, there's some stuff about the the politics of the uh, of the Trump administration that time period, which I took very personally, um, you know, specifically around uh, the the border. I mean, there was many things to be upset about for, for a person of my politics, but when when we when we as a country decided to uh, detain families at the southern border and then separate them and put children into cages and camps and and all of that, Um, I just was very angry. And the reason I was, besides humanity, the reason I was angry was because my son turned four in 2017 when this administrative policy was happening. And when I was four, I was separated from my parents as, as as a refugee. So all these memories came flooding back about how traumatic that separation was and about how I knew that I was traumatized by being separated from my parents benevolently for a few months, these children and their, 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 their parents, their families would be scarred forever by what happened to them. So I was really outraged by that and by other things. And so when it came time to write about this particular part of American history and I wrote Trump's name down, yes, there's, there is, it's redacted. You don't actually see the name. And on the one hand, that's really petty, I guess. On the other hand, I think, oh, oh, thank you. Uh, You're petty too, okay, that's good. Um, But you know, at at another level, the reason why I wanted to use redaction was because in fact, in the last 20 years of our forever war, we've seen quite a few redacted documents, right? Uh, There are things that we have done as a country that the authorities don't want us to know. So they'll release certain classified documents, but there's all this redaction that's taking place, like Guantanamo Bay documents, for example. I was struck because I had a, I got a book called Guantanamo Diary written by one of the, the, the prisoners there, and a lot of it's redacted, because that's what the government allowed. And so for me to redact the name in this book is not an act simply of pettiness, but it's also my reference to the redactions of American foreign policy, the redactions of our documents, the redactions of our, of our own consciousness that we as a country collectively, whether we like it or not, agree with what this country has been doing, we're all complicit in so many of the things that the country has done both domestically but also in terms of foreign policy and war as well. And I think the American way of, of surviving all of that is to redact the realities and the memories of what we have done and what we are doing. And so that's what it's symbolic of in the book. Getting applause after every answer gonna is... <laughs> gonna i moved going to move to Portland because I feel like I found my people here. It's awesome.
2: So uh, formally, you do a lot of really interesting things in the book. Uh, I feel like the, one of the most underused POVs in literature and sort of judged unfairly is the second person. Can you talk about your decision to do, to write the whole thing in second person? And also um, this sort of, I don't wanna say poetic, but structurally when you look at the text, you have sort of um, right, justified um, sections. Um, they have impact when you see them visually like that and you, you did it in very
1: specific places. Um, could you talk about those choices? You know, I think the real. Impot- I think I think of the book as very playful. I mean, the book is dealing with a lot of really serious things like war, refugee experience, racism, and colonialism, things like things like that. Um, but it's, I, I find that I, I, writing the book was actually really playful for me. And the reason why uh, is because I became a father, and uh, my son, watching him as we, as he grew up in those first few years, I realized he has no sense of boundaries. He has no sense of rules. He has no sense of genres. And part of me thinks, well, you'll learn soon enough, you know, you're going to become an adult and then you're going to learn how to behave. And it's not just about learning how to behave and coloring, it's literally learning how to color within the lines, which then translates into when we talk about literature, understanding that there are conventions about genres, about what books are supposed to do, if we label a book poetry, it's supposed to do this, novel, it's supposed to do that. Well." in children's literature, there are no rules. Have you noticed? Those of you who read children's literature or have kids, there are no rules, and you know what? The kids don't care. You can do anything in a children's book, and as long as you do it well, the kids will just go right along with it. And in fact, I think that you know, when I read children's literature, the, the children's literature that is the most conventional is the most boring. I'm like, oh my God, I have to read another you know, children's book that's gonna tell me some good moral lesson. I'm so not interested in that. My son loves the other kind of stuff. So Dogman is his favorite series right now. Dogman by Dav Pilkey. Those of you who haven't read it, you're lost. Okay, I'll, I'll describe it for you. It's, it's a comic book, uh, graphic novel. And uh, Dogman is a super cop who, is, who has the body of a superhuman cop and the head of a dog. Now, how he came out that way, you're going to have to read the book to find out. But he stars in a series of books called with titles like Fetch 22, and for whom the ball rolls. <laughs> and his arch enemy is Petey the cat. You know, it's, it's incredible. And uh, there are no rules. I mean, the Pilkey's a genius. He just does whatever he wants to do. And my son loves it. And lots, millions of kids love this book, this series. And so reading books like that with him, I thought, wow, being an adult is so boring. And you know, adult literature is so boring. Like even when the sympathizer, there are no quotation marks in the sympathizer. I, I can't tell you how many people complained. Why are there no quotation marks? And, I'm like, and, and so I just thought, adults are so boring. And uh, so in this book, I didn't wanna be boring to myself writing it. So I just wanted to give in to my intuition and impulse. If it felt right, I did it. That's why there is, like you said, some right justification, left justification. When I wanna emphasize things, the the size of the text changes and and there's a lot of white space in the book. So it's meant to be very playful and very easy to read um, because there's (laughs) there's so much white space in there. But the reason why I made certain decisions, like using second person, um, for most of the book, not all of it, was because it was very hard for me to write this memoir in the sense that I didn't want to write a memoir. I thought my life is very boring, I'm very boring, my parents are the interesting people, and then I thought I was very ordinary, too, um, and normal. And when I told my wife that, she said, no, you're not normal, <laughs> you <know? laughs> who are you going to believe, my wife or me? <laughs> so. Uh, and so, But I realized in order to write this memoir, I would have to figure out why I wasn't normal. What were the, what were the, the self-deceptions that I had engaged in my entire life? And the, the way that I did it was to think of myself as this man of two faces, me and myself, and that I had to interrogate myself. And that's where the you comes in. So I'm talking to myself m- much of the time through, uh, through the book.
2: Now I feel like if they don't clap, it's going to be read as like a disappointment. (laughs) They're setting themselves up to have to clap now. Um, In a lot of ways, the book is also about you becoming a writer. One of the chapters you wrote is called uh, Portrait of the Writer as a Young Fathead, um, which I love. I think there's a parallel universe where you sort of got stuck somewhere in capital T theory or as an academic. Can you talk a little bit about and you do in the book uh, the transformation of you becoming a writer in the sense of like a fiction writer and this playful writer of this inventive memoir. Can you talk about that transformation?
1: By the way, the reason why I say portrait of the writer as a young fat is I show you a photograph of myself and my brother, and it's the only photograph we have together from Vietnam because that was a photo my dad was carrying in his wallet when the final invasion of, the, of, of South Vietnam happened and we had to flee the country. And so there's one wallet-sized photo of my brother and me. He's probably eight or nine, and I'm two or three. And my head is as big as his head. So that's never changed. Um, and then, um, you know, when I, when I got to the United States, uh, I, I was watching my parents undergo all these terrible experiences as refugees. Uh, and how I survived being an eyewitness to their trauma was to just go to the library a lot and read a lot of books. And those stories saved me and made me made me a reader and what made me into a writer was that in the third grade our school teacher said we're all going to write and draw our own books and so I was eight years old and my book was Lester the Cat. Lester was an urban cat stricken with ennui (laughs) bored with city life he fled to the countryside. There, in a hay-strewn barn, he found love with a country cat. The end. Uh, Yeah, and you know, unexpectedly, the San Jose Public Library gave Lester the cat a book award. And I'm forever grateful to the San Jose Public Library for encouraging me and setting me on the path to more than 30 years of misery in trying to become a writer. And, uh, and, you know, what happened on that 30 years of misery, during that 30 years of misery, is that I became an academic. I mean, I, I had to get a job. My parents had no idea I wanted to become a writer. I never told them that. And so instead, I told them that I was going to become a doctor. And I said, really? And I said, yeah, a doctor of English. <laughs> they were sorely disappointed at that point. But at least it was a job. That much they understood that I was a professor. And I think I became an academic, you know, a literary scholar, a cultural critic, someone who did a lot of theory because uh, academic knowledge allowed me this idea that I could master the world, that I could master the text and that I could be invulnerable. Because if you're an academic and you show any vulnerability You're dead. It's like blood in the water. All the other academic sharks will get you. So, to survive in academia, you really have to be invulnerable. And I needed that. I needed to pretend that there was no weakness or damage or anything that had happened to me because of the refugee experience. And so, then to become a a writer, uh, part of that misery was to unlearn all of the academic theory, unlearn all of the deadening prose. So for example, the first book I wrote, Race and Resistance, is an academic book. My, my high school best friend got a copy and he said, um, yeah, I keep it by my bed on my nightstand to help me fall asleep, <laughs> you know? And so I thought, okay, I, I, I would like to write books that don't make people fall asleep. And it took a long time, all that misery, to develop that voice as a writer to really, again, excavate burrow deep inside, both to learn the art, but also to discover the vulnerability and the emotion that I think is necessary to be a writer. See, no
2: clapping, that sounds loud now, it sounds loud to not clap. You should not do it out of obligation or pity. Um, (laughs) So you do talk about um, opening up emotionally um, in the book, and um, there's a scene where you're, you're talking about, the, a teacher asks you, I believe it was at Cal, about um, maybe like an emotional or strong reaction you had to watching a, mov- watching a film, and you go back to Apocalypse Now when you first saw it, and you sort of hadn't realized how much you felt about it. And from there, you sort of, we end up at Francis Ford Coppola's winery and this sort of skull scene. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, um, about these latent feelings and how they've come about, and how maybe writing the memoir even opens you up even more than you thought you would have then through the novels.
1: Well, you know, I, um, I I mentioned that I went to the public library a lot, read a lot of books, and so on, and I, I grew up with the sense that you know stories can save us or save me. And then my parents brought home a VCR in like 1982, 1983, and. You know, one of the first movies I watched was Apocalypse Now. My parents had no idea what I was watching. And at that point, I was eleven or twelve, and I, I felt myself to be an American. And I loved watching war movies. I was a war fanatic, and I would watch John Wayne movies and I would root for the Americans and so on. And so I put Apocalypse Now into the video cassette recorder, and I didn't know anything about the movie except that it was about the Vietnam War, and I knew nothing about the Vietnam War except that we had come from Vietnam. And so the movie began, and I was rooting for the Americans. Uh, Up until the moment they massacred Vietnamese civilians. And at that point, I felt myself to be split in two. Was I the American doing the killing? Or was I the Vietnamese being killed? And that was so disturbing for me, and I had no language for it, that I just put it away, and I didn't think about that again for many years. And I internalized those images that I saw, not just in Apocalypse Now, but a bunch of other American movies about the Vietnam War, um, Full Metal Jacket, Platoon, Rambo, and so on, internalized it so much, and not just me, but I think a lot of Asian Americans of my generation saw these images, and they were disturbing. Um, So much so that a few years later, I went to high school at a primarily white high school, but there were some of us who were of Asian descent. But we didn't have a language for ourselves, you know, we didn't know that we were Asian Americans. So every day we would gather in a corner of the campus, and we would call ourselves the Asian invasion. That was the only language we had for ourselves as this racist pejorative. And of course, the joke was on us because Asians have never invaded the United States. If anything, it's the United States that has invaded Asia. Um, but I couldn't put that into words until I was in college and then you know took this class and I the professor asked us to describe a, a movie scene that was important. First scene that leaps to mind is that moment in apocalypse now. And as, as as I described that scene to the class, I found myself shaking with rage and anger even after all those years. And that's when I realized that stories have the power to destroy us as well. If stories have power, they can do they can both save and destroy. And that was a turning point for me, turning point, because that gave me the sense that, oh, not only can I become a writer, I need to become a writer. Because writing would be my way of fighting. And then by the time I finished writing this book, I realized writing was also my way of grieving as well.
2: So you write uh, beautifully about your experience of, of grieving the, the passing of your mother. Do you feel like it was only possible to write this book after she, after she passed?
1: So my mother passed away in 2018, and this book is very much about her and what she went through. And You're absolutely right. I think, I think that I never would have been able to write about her uh, before her death. Um, So what happened, you know, in so in one sense this I wrote this book during the pandemic, so it took two years to write. In another sense, it took me 30 years to write this book, because the first words of this book, the idea of it, I wrote when I was an undergraduate at at Berkeley. So what happened was I was 19 years old and I, I took a nonfiction writing seminar from the writer Maxine Hong Kingston. Yeah. Good, I'm glad you know her, author of *The Woman Warrior*, *China You know important books like this. Um, but what did I care? I was 19 years old, and every day I would, I would go to class in uh, a class of 14 students. I would sit this far away from Maxine, and every day I would fall asleep. Maxine uh, has told me to my face that I was the worst student in the class. Um, <laughs> everyone else got an A. I got a B plus, otherwise known as an Asian F. Um, At the end of the semester, Maxine writes everybody a letter. In her letter to me, she tells me, you should go seek counseling, um, which I never did. I became a writer instead. But I think the reason why Maxine thought I needed to seek counseling was because of what I had written for her in that class, which was an essay about uh, my uh, my mother being committed to a psychiatric facility, the Asian Pacific Psychiatric Ward of the Santa Clara Valley Medical Center. And uh, obviously a very hard essay for me to write, obviously a very difficult experience for my for my mother uh, to experience and for me to witness. And what I did with that essay is I put it into a, uh, a milk crate and I put it into my uh, adolescent bedroom closet and I didn't look at it again for 30 years until the pandemic. And during those 30 years, whenever I would think about um, my mother going to the psychiatric facility, I thought it had happened when I was a little boy because I felt small and terrified in that psychiatric uh uh, ward. I opened up the, the archive, read the essay during the pandemic, and I realized that my mother had gone to that psychiatric facility when I was 18. And I wrote it about a year later when I was 19. So even as a young adult and then as an adult, my, I had deceived myself or my memory had deceived me. And that was partly why the book is in second person. You know, again, that sense of duality that I couldn't even trust my own memory and I had to interrogate myself if I wanted to elicit that memory. Uh, You know, that was the second out of three times my mother went to psychiatric facilities. Uh, The first time was in 1975, soon after we came to the United States and I was four years old, so I have no memory of this. Um, I just have a vague memory of sitting at the back of the house with my father and my brother and, and, you know, my mother's no longer there and we're talking about it, but I don't know why she's there, not there. Um, and later, I would find out, you know, her her own mother had died in Vietnam while we were uh, refugees. She'd been devastated by not being able to be there, and so she had a breakdown. And then, um, uh, thirteen years after her second uh, breakdown, she had a third breakdown. And from 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 that breakdown, she went back to the Asian Pacific psychiatric ward, and she left eventually but she never recovered. And so for the next uh, 13 years of her life my father would my father would care for her in his 70s and his 80s. So all that was just so emotionally devastating and it was not something that we could talk about outside of the family. You know, I think for for many people, many families this would be a very a forbidden topic to talk about. But for, for Asian immigrants and refugees in particular, where mental health, mental illness is a shame and you're not supposed to ever acknowledge it, this is especially forbidden topic. So there was no way I, I could have written this book on this issue about my mother while she was still alive. But even after her death and writing this book, I felt that, that this, the book is still a betrayal. I think the book is an act of love because, because I, you know, it, 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 I want to give you this, this portrait of my mother who was this incredible woman who overcame so many obstacles. She had a grade school education, and yet she became wealthy twice, once in Vietnam and lost everything, and then again in the United States. She overcame all these obstacles, only to be undone, like so many heroes, by herself. Um, so it's an act of love to talk about her, but it's also an act of betrayal. And, you know, Maxine on Kingston, in the, in the opening of The Woman Warrior, it's one of the great lines of literature. It begins, you must not tell anyone, my mother said, what I'm about to tell you. And, of course, The Woman Warrior is about telling everybody what her mother said she shouldn't tell. It's love and betrayal. And I think writing a memoir, at least for me, is also an act of love and betrayal as well.
2: So the book opens up with a kind of uh, if there was a biopic um, question, and you sort of um, go in and out of that the idea, and, and and you talk about film and representation a lot. Can you talk about the the importance of representation, um, and also tell us a little bit about uh, the adaptation of The Sympathizer, which is coming out next year, and has Robert has Iron Man in it, basically. <laughs> Um, and just talk about that experience and where we are kind of in the moment of representation right now.
1: Yeah. Well, RDJ and I have had lunch a couple of times, i like to say, yeah, uh, uh, he's a great guy. We'll get to that in just a moment. But you know, the opening of the book is like, what if, what if my parents' lives were a movie? Because I think they deserve it. And so many of our parents deserve movies um, of their lives, given what they've gone through, what would it look like and so on. And so I imagine their, their, their life story is being done by Wong Kar Wai, for example. Um, but of course that movie would never be made because they're Vietnamese refugees. And, and if, if a movie ever gets made about, about, about refugees, it will probably be about Ukrainian refugees starring Angelina Jolie, okay? Um, but not about Southeast Asian. Refugees, or if we did have a movie about Southeast Asian refugees, it would be a low budget Asian American indie flick. Um, it wouldn't be a $200 million epic with Angelina Jolie or Robert Downey Jr. and so on. Um, and that's part of the nature of, of representation. Um, if we talk about the, the war in Vietnam, for example, and we talk about American uh, art and literature, the first people, I think, to respond to the war in Vietnam and be critical of it were the poets. The poets protested first among the artists, and that's because writing poetry costs you nothing except your life. (laughs) Hollywood responded the slowest and the worst, in my opinion, because it's such an enormous amount of money to make a Hollywood movie, and you can't change a corporation very easily, and that corporation is a part of the military-industrial complex. And the sympathizer, I say, Hollywood is our unofficial ministry of propaganda. And so, What does that mean, then, for someone like me to contest Hollywood's version of the Vietnam War and then find myself in Hollywood making a TV series about the Vietnam War? It's a real problem in a lot of ways. Uh, and This TV series, uh, I found out, um, is costing something like $120 million for seven hours of TV. And I'll just tell you a little bit how, about how it was made, because it'll tell you something about the Hollywood, uh, you know, complex. So when the novel won the, the Pulitzer Prize in 2016, people started to call from Hollywood, producers, actors, this kind of thing. Met a bunch of people, and I decided to work with an Asian woman, Asian American woman producer who has a great track record, has produced films many of you have probably seen. She went off uh, for several months to try to to try to sell this thing. And our model at the time was a TV series called Narcos, uh, which cost about. Fifty million dollars um, about uh, you know narcotics and drug running in in in, uh, in uh, Colombia. She comes back after many months and she says, "Well, for this budget, what I'm hearing from studios and producers is we need someone like Keanu Reeves to be in the TV series." And I, and I was like, "Well, uh, that's racist, you know, because I love Keanu Reeves. He's not Vietnamese, but." He was the closest thing to a mixed-race actor people could think of, given the mixed-race character of the novel. It's so Hollywood. Like, we'll just cast anybody who's mixed-race to play this role, even though he can't speak Vietnamese. And so uh, when you think about it, Narcos had nobody famous in it. Now we know it had Pedro Pascal, who's famous now, but he was not famous back then. So you could get that TV series made for 50 million, but for Vietnamese or Asian Americans, we would have to have Keanu Reeves. Okay. So, many. I got a new producer, many, 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 many conversations later in Hollywood, we finally landed um, the director Park Chan-wook, who, if you've watched Old Boy or The Handmaiden, he's amazing. And I think he's perfect for this for this TV series because of his politics, his historical awareness, and the fact that he's just this over-the-top film, direct, uh, film and TV director. And if you've watched Old Boy, it's a major influence on The Sympathizer. So... We got got Park Chan-wook, and with Park Chan-wook, we got A24, and everybody under 30 loves A24, right? Yeah. And then with that combination, we got Robert Downey Jr., and then with that, we got HBO and $120 million. I think the budget went up 50% once we got Robert Downey Jr. on board. And Park Chan-wook's stroke of genius, among many, was to, to decide that he would cast one white male actor to play all the white guys in the novel. So I think there's a moment... Where Robert Downey Jr. actually plays four different white guys in one scene, um, and he, he's really he really got into it, which is great. Um, so it was really interesting because, of course, the hook for this TV series is Robert Downey Jr. You know, world famous guy, but everybody else, almost everybody else, is Vietnamese in the in the in the cast, right? A couple of famous Vietnamese actresses are famous among the Vietnamese community, and then everybody else is like under 30 years old, I think, and they're young and they're talented. They're Vietnamese from Australia, from the United States, from Vietnam. And so as as complicated as it is to make a TV series with Hollywood with all of the complications you might imagine, I, I still feel that it was, it was important. But because once this TV series is aired, you're gonna be hearing a TV series in which much of the dialogue is in Vietnamese with subtitles. Um, director Bong jun ho of Parasite, when he gave his Oscar speech, says the biggest barrier in the world for Americans is a one-inch barrier of subtitles, and, uh, and you know, you're you going to see all these Vietnamese faces of these young and talented actors like Hwas one day who plays the sympathizer, uh, and I hope that makes a difference. I hope just seeing Vietnamese faces, hearing the Vietnamese language, having a story centered on Vietnamese experiences is, is, is in and of itself so radical that it took us years to get this TV series made. Have you been able to see it yet? Have I been able to see it? I've watched two episodes in rough draft form, but when you watch that, it looks great. However, there are no, there are no special effects. So I'm literally watching the fall of Saigon and people are running around on a green screen pretending that their rocket's falling. It's like, it takes you out of the moment. You know? So I'm still waiting for the, final, for the final cut. But I have seen uh, two trailers and the most recent trailer. It's just It just looks incredible.
2: So you do something um, really kind of radical and, and um, the, the way that you do it, you just executed it so well in the book. It's a kind of unification of the othered in America, and it feels like such a natural thing to do to, f- to find our common ground, um, but the way that you do it is is just so clear um, in the face of like something that's obvious, the op- sort of open lie of white supremacy that's ongoing now and unending. Can you talk a little bit about your decision to, to make this through line? Um, I especially appreciated all of the inclusion of of uh, Native people and, and our experience of being Americans and you know You really found a lot of connective tissue that sort of seems obvious once you read it But you don't really hear a lot of people talking about how much we have in common
1: I'm in the middle of reading a book called writing and being which is Nadine Gordimer's essays that she delivered at Harvard and in the Last essay she has a, a line where she talks about she's talking about South Africa and apartheid and a line about how you know she comes from an immigrant Jewish family and immigrants in South Africa, she says, come in, and uh, they know immediately that they're, even if they're looked down on as immigrants, they're still better than the black miners who are under apartheid. They're living literally in the same neighborhood, and that if you give the immigrant 20 years, the immigrant will ascend the social ladder, and the black minor will stay exactly where they are. And this is how you get the immigrant to accept the system of colonialism and apartheid. I don't think that's a lot different than what happens in the United States, you know? Uh, the immigrant or the refugee who comes to this country, as, as, as difficult as that experience is, is, is for so many of them and for us, the, the immigrant and the refugee knows that, uh, that they're better still. Either they know it explicitly or they know it implicitly. They're better or better off than indigenous peoples and black people. Um, that is spoken and unspoken throughout American society, as far as I can tell. And the role of the immigrant or the refugee in this country is, number one, to come here and say, thank you, America, for welcoming us. Thank you, America, for rescuing us. Of course, we're never so rude as to say in public, maybe we wouldn't have needed to be aided by the United States if we hadn't been invaded by the United States in the first place, (laughs) you know. And so our function is to be the alibi for the American dream. Uh, that we're here to prove the validity of the American dream, which makes all Americans feel better about themselves. And that's, that's, that holds true, I think, even for, for liberal Americans. Um, I, I talk about the bu- in the book about the American dream being unironic and ironic. So you know, if you're a flag-waving nationalist, you're an unironic believer of the American dream. But if you're a multicultural, you know, DEI, Democrat, liberal, you're an ironic embracer of the American dream. You know, you sh- you, know, you you know, wink when you say the American dream, but you still really believe it. This is still the greatest country on earth for most Americans, whatever their political persuasion. So when you come here, or in my experience with other re- immigrants and refugees and myself is that it's really hard not to just be completely immersed in that idea of the American dream, American exceptionalism. Um, and I'll give you the anecdote from my own life that Illustrates that, which is that when we came as refugees to the country, this country, uh, for the first time, we were put into a refugee camp in in Pennsylvania, at a camp at a, an American fort called Fort Indian Town Gap. And for 40 years of my life, I never thought twice about why this place was called Indian Town Gap, and of course it was called that because the white settlers who came to this area of Pennsylvania built a fort in order to defend themselves or to wage war against the indigenous peoples of the area, the Susquehannock or the Conestoga, who by 1700 had most been wiped out by warfare and illness. And most of the survivors were massacred in 1700 by a white vigilante gang called the Paxton Boys. So we leave the refugee camp and my parents buy their first house. And then last year, uh, my brother finds the deed to the house my, my parents bought that house in Lower Paxton Township, where the Paxton boys came from. So what does it mean to come to this country as a refugee and to buy property and to settle down and become citizens if we're doing that on indigenous land? I mean, that just was made very vividly clear for me on discovering that deed that this land had been ethnically cleansed and then made available for refugees and immigrants later on, like us, to succeed in the American dream. And so, you know, I think about how when when we uh, were in Vietnam, the American soldiers would call the land around their fire bases Indian country. So the Vietnamese were the Indians in the American imagination. And so many people have been the Indians in the American imagination. We have Indians in the American imagination right now in the wars that we wage overseas or the wars that we help to sponsor. And yet, when these people come to the United States, the former Indians know they should stop being Indians and become immigrants and refugees and alibis for the American dream. Uh, Which is why I say that the American dream is actually a euphemism for settler colonialism. That's how we... not so much applause now because it's like it's a little uncomfortable to, to acknowledge that the American dream would not be possible without the ongoing history and the present of, of settler colonialism. But if we realize that, that's how the otherness that you're talking about, we can start connecting it because the politics of diversity and identity in this country, I think were actually designed to separate us. I'm an Asian American, you're a Native American, you're X, you're Y, you're Z. We get our little DEI slot and so on of inclusion. And I'm not about inclusion. Uh, I'm about solidarity. I'm about trying to figure out, think past the politics of divide and conquer that are still with us today and figure out the politics of unity and solidarity in order to realize actual freedom and democracy in this country.
2: There's an extra progressive pocket right here. <laughs> the Marxists. <laughs> so this is gonna be kind of a selfish question. You had a really big novel, one the Pulitzer, um, and then you followed it up with a sequel and that happened during the pandemic. Um, can you talk about the experience of, of doing a sequel and, and what the rollout of that was like. I, I have a, book, a sequel coming out um, in February.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Wandering Stars, absolutely, yeah. Uh, well, you know, when I wrote The Sympathizer, um, I wrote it out of a space of, I think, absolute freedom uh, because I'd spent 17 years working on a short story collection called The Refugees and every single moment was miserable writing that book, because I was learning how to write short stories, and also I was writing for an audience. I was thinking, I was writing for editors and agents and reviewers, and as a young anxious writer, or younger anxious writer, I wanted to be published, right? And in order to do that, I had to worry about the the, the opinions of the tastemakers and the power brokers and the gatekeepers and so on. And um, by the time I got to the sympathizer, I thought, wow, I've just spent all my all this time writing for other people, and I don't like it so I'm gonna write The Sympathizer for myself, and I don't care who I offend. Um, and so in fact, in, in, in The Sympathizer, there's something to offend everyone if you choose to be so offended. Um, so I, I've I've gotten criticisms from Americans who thought, find me anti-American, I've gotten criticisms from uh, Vietnamese Americans who find me communist, and then I've gotten criticisms from the Vietnamese government who find me anti-communist, you know. And so when I wrote the the sequel, The Committed, obviously the big question was, who else is there left to offend? And the answer obviously was, the French. And so, we were colonized by the French, and the French, as far as I'm concerned, got off easy. Uh, because the Americans, at least for everything that the Americans did in Vietnam, they documented it all. Like all the photographs, all the war movies, everything, TV, newscasts. So ironically, it's been Americans who have broadcast to the entire world through the American culture industry that this was a bad war. So you can go anywhere in the world, and people are like, oh yeah, the Vietnam War, that was a terrible war, because we watched the apocalypse now. Um, the, the, the French just have some black and white photographs. And so the French did terrible things in Vietnam during colonialism, so much so that the Vietnamese revolutionaries and communists accused the French of enslaving Vietnamese people to build their rubber plantations and do all this other kind of stuff. But we only have these romantic black and white photographs of the French in their white linen suits, you know, uh, you know, on their plantations, and it looks beautiful. And so the French have gotten off easy in the global imagination. Um, most likely, uh, you, know, you remember French colonialism from watching Catherine Deneuve in Andochine, uh, or reading Margaret Duras' uh, The Lover and watching the movie adaptation so there's this romantic sheen over French colonialism, which I wanted to take away. And then I set it in Paris in the 1980s, and of course, Americans, as much as they have ambivalence about the French, uh, about France, Americans love Paris, and they have this total stereotype of Paris. That's why they have Emily in Paris, which I've never seen. And this is sort of like the anti-Emily in Paris, because it's... Uh, Set amongst uh, Vietnamese gangsters in the refugee quarters of Paris, and the drug running and the crime and the and the battles they have with Algerian gangsters, um, and in, in through it all, there is this sort of critique of, of French colonialism that's taking place. So I had a lot of fun writing *The Committed*, but uh, you know, I mean, you know, for when I wrote *The Sympathizer*, I I I wrote it for two, in, over two years. No one bothered me. It was a really magical experience, and then it won the. So I wrote it to offend everybody except the Pulitzer Prize Committee. So the Pulitzer Prize Committee liked it, gave it the Pulitzer, and then that sort of disrupted my life while I was writing The Committed. So I didn't have two years. I had four years of great disruption writing that book. But just as I wrote The Sympathizer for myself after I won the Pulitzer, I thought, well, should I write more books and try to win, try to win more Pulitzers? Or should I try to write from the same spirit I wrote The Sympathizer, which is for myself? And, and I stuck with that. And, I, the committed is, and The Committed and A Man of Two Faces is written first and foremost for myself and then for Vietnamese people and then for everybody else.
0: Yeah.
2: The book is largely a meditation on memory. And you really um, make, through language, make us think uh, about the word remembering. This is a really... Important word in the book. Can you talk a little bit about, about why you wanted to really like hammer in this idea of remembering?
1: So, in Toni Morrison's *Beloved*, you'll remember she comes up with a concept that she calls re-memory. Um, this idea that the past is not past, it's still still with us. And in the world of beloved, what that means is that there are real ghosts wandering the land. The plantation of slavery, the, the slavery plantation, the slave plantation, even though it's officially over, is still there waiting for the formerly enslaved to trip across it, re-memory. And so I, I, I took that idea and I thought about how, for those of us who have been subjected to racism uh, in many ways, Sometimes we like to say that we're invisible uh, because of racism, and that's true. But I also like to think that we've also been hyper-visible all the time. So if you watch Vietnam War movies, for example, you'll see that the Vietnamese people are not invisible, we're visible all the time in these movies. But we're, we're seen and we're seen through all at the same time. It's never that we're not seen, we're seen through. And we're seen through in the way that we are subjected to all kinds of horrifying stereotypes, but also in the way that we're we're killed on screen or raped on screen, and so we're being dismembered on screen. And so for me, it's it's not just that we're dismembered, we're being disremembered. We're being seen and seen through. We're being remembered and forgotten all at the same time. That's the pernicious power of this kind of ideology that manifests itself in racist, sexist representation and misrepresentation and the impact upon us who have been dismembered and disremembered, seen and seen through, is that we have to find a way to reconstitute ourselves holistically. We have to find a way to remember ourselves because if we don't, the psychic injuries of being dismembered and disremembered are profound on so many of us. That's where the self-hatred comes in. That's where the sense of distortion comes in. That's where the sense that you know, our stories have never been told, uh, affects us so deeply, uh, at the deepest level, affects us by, by making us feel that our stories aren't worth being told. And so the act for me in this book is not just an act of re- literally remembering things that have happened, but re- remembering my body Remembering my mind, remembering my feelings, remembering the Vietnamese refugee community, re- remembering us. Because in fact, I think history blew us up. History blew us up and scattered four million Vietnamese refugees all over the world. We live. We live in fragments. And in any country you go to where we live, we are constantly being disremembered. And so this book is my attempt to remember us. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Tommy. Such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Portland, for being such a great Marxist audience. Love you guys.
0: That was Viet Thanh Nguyen in conversation with Tommy Orange from the Portland Book Festival in 2023. This has been Literary Arts, the archive project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Matthew Workman for radio and podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem, and I'm the executive producer. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.